The subject for this evening's talk is service and suchness. There are, <coughs> of course, quite a number of people who, in entering into uh, the facility here, of you, of course, are extremely familiar with the world of service, engaged in service for the welfare of others. <coughs> Some of that work for others will include the processes of working with a person on a one-to-one -one basis. Sometimes that work is more at the uh, organizational, managerial role or embracing both. And sometimes the work is such that it's connected with and belongs to a movement of work. And here I'm thinking of social, political, economic uh, uh, forms of work. And when one looks at the intentions and the motivations which give support to that work, one's uh, wish and, and as much as the skills allow directly contributing to the reduction of uh, suffering, the increased welfare of people and uh, in some cases animals and nature and the environment of course as well. <coughs> and we see that in this world that we live in what has become quite often quite necessarily and perhaps rather narrowly so is that the relationship to oneself and the world is quite often such that the heartfulness may be there towards giving, towards offering one's services to other human beings, but what easily seems to take place is that, that we need a kind of skill, we need a, a form within which to work to help uh, allow that service to take place. And as a result, of course, many, many of you are here will have been, and perhaps at the present stage are, going through the process of working and serving others, having got some training or skill, so to speak, um, under one's belt to en enable one to do this, the work, whatever it may be. And there's a tremendous range of uh, diversity in that. There will be others here who, looking at themselves at the present point in their life, are not engaged in such, and that may be because of uh, uh, the forms of service uh, distinct from the ones that I mentioned, particularly maybe refer to family life, of course, parenting, um, and those kind of areas of responsibility. And then sometimes we're looking at ourselves and the relationship to service, to action um, in the world when we observe the movement of our activities, sometimes in what is called service or outside of its sphere, there is the recognition inside that actually self, the movement of self, the ego of for me, for my, is moving thinly or thickly, shall we say, through the service work. And this we n notice, and sometimes in our uh, observation of the work that we are 
engaged in and, and the way that that work is expressing, we sometimes experience in that movement the shortage of skills. We feel that we uh, haven't got enough uh, um, knowledge, we need to know more about whatever that activity might be. So then we start thinking and organizing our life to find ways to increase the skill level. The normal way of thinking through this, of course, is through knowledge and information. And we feel that with the accumulation of knowledge and information, we'll be better off for that. We have the experience of the past, of course, of being better off for that. And in doing that, we feel, rightly or wrongly, we feel that we are more qualified in our particular area of interest. And in that qualification with the knowledge, which means the language, then gets manifest and made uh, expressed to others, human beings, near and far, along with the intention for their welfare. Sometimes I, sus I feel and, uh, and, and su suspect that, that we put too much faith in the knowledge, though as useful and as valuable it may be, and sometimes the knowledge is actually at the expense of genuine life experience. And so sometimes there's a kind of shortcut which is employed, gain the knowledge, and the knowledge is there, as it were, previous to experience. And I think one, and it's a very general comment here, I think, I think it's a very unfortunate thing that the, the society says to people, um, schooling, high school, college, uh, university, and career, uh, one successive thing after, after the other, and therefore a movement of the brain <coughs> through time from childhood into career. And I think when that, when that happens, and it happens very frequently, that there may not be any r genuine life experience without the day-to-day -day knowledge pouring into the brain. And since this is such a tr trend, sometimes one thinks it would be useful to introduce some uh, legislation which says, thou shalt not go to university between the ages of t 18 and 30. <laughs> <laughs> so first experience life, first feel life through not being concerned with all this packing uh, of the brain cells, and then the interest, the enthusiasm for knowledge and the uh, sincerity be <coughs> behind it can really come with that. Instead of seeing, as it sometimes, and people report to me regularly, feels like, oh, I've got to do this because I've got to get this qualification. If I don't get this qualification, I can't get on with what I really want to do. This is a common thread and theme which takes place. And <coughs> Certainly, in, in uh, realistic terms, the knowledge with regard to action and service is very uh, significant, extremely helpful, but I don't know how significant a great deal of it actually is. 
And if one gives consideration to the amount of accumulation of knowledge that one has acquired in any particular field, and when we are utterly honest with oneself, how much we actually apply, I think it filters down remarkably quickly. And I think it, w I think it would be a gross exaggeration on my part if we actually employed anywhere near 0.001% of the knowledge. <laughs> so something in the state of imbalance, I think, easily happens in a human being expecting to know a great deal about something when all that's required is actually very little, but to know it well. And we've become fascinated with quantity in service rather than with the quality and the, and the difference between knowing with the brain and insight and understanding and its application. And I think all this has to be very thoroughly uh, examined and particularly those of you in the field of uh, education, I think one has a, uh, a real responsibility to be act as a subversive to the present education system and to see if one can engineer skillfully its collapse. <laughs> So there's, there's the heart's wish and the original spirit. There's the intention and movement which takes place. And then there is the action which comes uh, with it. And that action is such that it's a, hopefully, uh, the action which contributes to the welfare of others. All of that, and as we have spoken about a number of times over the days, is an expression of a thoughtful person who, I think, in the original spirit of all of that, is actually saying to herself or himself, I regard that in living in this world is such that other people do in fact matter as much as I do. That other people are worthy of as much care and attention as I am worthy of care and attention. And in a way, I think service is something inside of us which says, let's make that applicable. Let's make that not as any theorizing, but actually uh, an expression of that awareness. And thus people here and elsewhere uh, truly are giving as many, m if time way of thinking, more hours often to the welfare of others, one, then one is giving to oneself. And I think that's a very beautiful selfless action. With all of this movement that, that takes place, and I mentioned in one of the inquiries the other evening, I do con consider that with service that one should never forget the vice which is in service. And this vice which is often dragging along at the end, is dragging along at the end of service, is such that what is the movement inside as it moves outwardly, that is the expression, the action, with an anticipated result for the welfare of others as the anticipated result, what is that movement that so easily, in the course of time, corrupts the movement? It may even begin corrupted, of course, but certainly what goes on in that movement? And, and is it such that sometimes in the movement for others that there's a thickening of the ego accompanying it? 
how does that sh how does that show itself in one's life? How does that movement show itself? What what's the indications of ego at work, which is the corrupting factor there? What would what would show that? One of the things with any kind of work that which comes to us, one is going to be faced with two potent dualities of this world. One is called praise and the other is called blame. And it's a naivety to think that anyone can get one and exclude the other. The very world itself that we know and familiar is a world which generates, everyday world, it generates these states of mind. Praise and blame. The relationship to praise and blame is the feeding ground for, e for the ego. That's, the, I think, the primary consideration in the action, what's going on around that and around the result in the name, in the appearance of praise and blame. Get that clear with ourselves and we'll see where our ego is with it. In that, the, the praise and the blame, of course, it's not only praise and blame which comes outside, but sometimes the praise and the blame comes as in as intense, if not a more intense form, for some people from inside in the judgment about the action and the result. And service is action and result. What's, what's the state of praise and blame with it? So powerful is praise and blame as potent psychological uh, forces with, uh, with ourselves that it easily affects the capacity to act. So, when there's the movement there and, and one, one gets and receives the result of every action and our actions constantly receive results, when we get the results, how are we with regard to results? How are we? How are we? With that, the results can be, in a way, uh, many, but say threefold of results. One result is we get what we want. Heart intention is good, serve other human beings. That comes about, we see the welfare is manifesting there, the result is there, the appreciation is there, and from another, from ourselves, we may generate the, the, the praise, the appreciation there. Another is that we get the result, but it's the result which we don't want, or somebody else doesn't want, and that invites, remember, not getting what one wants, invites blame. It invites criticism, it invites reaction. How do we cope with it? How are we dealing with it? And the other is, we don't know what the result is. Favourable result, unfavourable result, and not knowing the result. That relationship to the action and the result, therein is a test of our wisdom. Therein is seeing our maturity, in uh, conventional terms, our maturity in life, dealing with action and result, the praise, the blame, and the not knowing. And anybody who's involved, for others, numerous situations, 
day in and day out, as well as those who are less frequent with that, will know and recall, you will recall, the impact and the influences of praise, blame, and not knowing. Sometimes the mind, the ego, with the movement that takes place, grabs hold of one or the other. Grabs hold of it. I'll give you a very good, exa good example. I have to try to make sure I don't reveal too much information. Um, one person is, I know is doing a conversation with, long conversation with recently, doing some very, very fine and committed work, starting very much at the grassroots level and work which is uh, contributing at community level for the genuine peace, harmony and safety, especially safety of uh, uh, people and large numbers of people. Then, and that is work has been taking place, a consistency has been accompanying that work in a, in a diligent way, and then he told me, out of the blue came this incredible offer an incredible offer to, as it were, put him into another league. But another league of influence, but that this other league of influence would be much more um, global, it would be much more um, theoretical, uh, abstract, but the role would give him a great deal of prestige. So there he is working diligently and has earned himself worthwhile, a, a valuable reputation for his consistency at the grassroots level and, and enabling change there and mobilizing change there and suddenly he said this came out of the blue and he said it's not like I looked for it it's not like I went to the magazines or had any interest in it. it came out of the blue sometimes when this it comes out of the blue there then this odd new age thinking then starts coming in there and starts to rationalize this and it says ah oh, it must be meant to happen <laughs> it's I didn't look for it I had no expectation I had no choice in choice in the in the matter but I see that this really was intended for me and that generated in this particular person said told me two months Two months of ambivalence. Two months of, do I keep faith with the work that I'm doing? Or do, do I go and take this? But it would take me away from people. It would remove me from people. And in, some <coughs> in situations like that, in the movement, in the course of time which is taking place there, that if one is working well and effectively, and keeping faith with that, one then must watch the strain of personal ambition, the strain of the ego, which can run through the actions and the results. And that strain, as I said, can get thickened, and it begins to overshadow, permeate the heart, permeate the work. And I think if, if ever you and I are getting feedback on this. We need to sit up and take notice very, very quickly so that we don't just dismiss people 
who perhaps can sense or see our egotism is getting involved in ways that sometimes we, we don't see. In this too, with blame too, with too much preoccupation with results, how easily with blame or with feelings that it's not working out, the identification with that is what cripples people. It cripples the heart's action for the welfare of others. So if one is vulnerable to taking on board blame, grasping onto blame, identifying with that, or not getting what one wants in the action, the results that one wants, one's acutely susceptible to this. One would be acutely susceptible to the work fading out. Heart will, one will, as we say, lose heart. Even though the intention's fine, the activity is is fine, the interests, the concerns are fine, that's all the healthiest element of a human being. But if one's just that too much susceptible to the, to the criticism, to the hostility, to the negativity, to the misunderstanding of others, or to one's own history of judging of oneself, it just, it corrupts it. So, let's Let's not attach ourselves to praise and blame. Let's not make a big fuss about praise and blame. Let's acknowledge that plenty of the work that we do, the results may never really be visible to us. Every time one is a servant of other people, and in every activity that we might be engaged in, we may never ever know what the outcome is. We may never ever see it with our own eyes and ears. But, is that reason to stop? Is that a reason to reduce the relationship between oneself and others and say, well, I can't see the result, I'm not sure if I'm doing any good at all, or whatever. Or is it saying, the heart's there, the action is there, and there's faith and trust that that matters. Therefore, we can live with not knowing what the outcome will be. And some of us feel, as I do and others do, that in some areas of the, that world, in that way, that one is just, in some respect, looking from a time way, one is just sowing seeds, and those seeds will see what flowers. Then we look sometimes, and particularly look at, as somebody had uh, mentioned, the, sometimes with the language, with the uh, way of expression, one has to be very, very cautious about this, because sometimes, like then, I'm speaking, and you and I are always speaking between, almost between one and two languages. That time I'm speaking in the active language the doing language of activity <coughs> towards results and seeing that at work in our life and in the life of others and giving acknowledgement to that conventional world that we uh, agree to. And then sometimes we're speaking in another way of language, another way of speaking 
and we're not speaking so much on the active principle, we're saying we're speaking more on um, uh, non-action, or presence, or non-efforting, non-striving, or being here and now, seeing things as they are, and speaking in that mode. And sometimes, as uh, some of you have mentioned quite regularly, sometimes it's not, it's not easy to understand, to realize the, as it were, relationship of these two. Quite often, in teachings like this, there's been, and there, and, and there is of course, and here too, a lot of encouragement and emphasis on the present, and we we'll often speak of the living here and now, and the relationship to it. In that participation, in the relation, in your relationship to that, we haven't made any concern, any fuss, shall we say, about future and outcomes and results. So here and now <coughs> is what counts. In this here and now, which which counts, so the relationship to that sometimes the result of it, the result in the here and now is one feels passive. If you sit all day, it's hardly the most active lifestyle, is it? And being in the situation here, in what one sees, that what one is actually doing is the minimal amount of possible activity. That is essentially the construction and the formation of the day. So even in the sitting posture, the encouragement, either through what we say here, or through what others are like, we can't say what they're doing, through what they're not doing while they're here, the whole message through the eyes and the ears and the very body, because it's, uh, it's, it's almost tangible, is don't move. Don't do anything. And it's such a powerful message in the, in the hall here that sometimes a small event which would never, ever, ever cross our mind, like the eyes suddenly lid going up, and it, I mean, after all, it hasn't got that far to go, has it? <laughs> that in its movement up, the question arises, why did I have to open my eyes? <laughs> one's never had this thought in one's whole existence. What, you know, which is another way of saying, why did I have to do this? You know, or sometimes there's the sitting posture, the atmosphere says, do nothing, utterly nothing, moment after moment, and then some movement takes place, sometimes a, a flurry of movement or a mindful movement, and the thought arises, why did I have to do that? And the doing, the movement, the doing, seems to be against the message. Against, as it were, the body of teaching, which is saying, not doing, not doing, not doing, not doing. And even with the walking period, when a person goes for a, a long walk, the person can feel, because of the instructions and the way we give them, that, that going for a long walk is doing too much. And, the mess and each time one comes out of the hall, there are always going to be 
those people who in their walking are doing very, very little. And we see half a dozen of them in the walking hall, and we walk through the walking hall, and we say, that's what it's really about, this is not doing. As much as possible, you could, how could you make walking any less than what they're doing on the other side of this hall here? <laughs> So, everything seems to be working in a contrast to the norm. The norm is, is, is doing, we've prized doing, we have said, okay, let's try to get out of the selfishness of the doing, therefore making others matter equally, yet still there's a very, a message of contrast. Not doing, not doing, not doing, not doing. In this not doing that takes place, of, of course, and as has been pointed out, it can contribute to a passivity. And there can be a tremendous degree of stability through the not doing, a real feeling of real calmness with life, a sense of a choiceless awareness in which one is observing and witnessing all things very, very equally, so that one senses of oneself that one feels quite undisturbed by the events of life, that the eye, what is revealed in the content of the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, touch, um, thought and feeling seems to be harmonized and stable, and there's a sense of clarity about that. Uh, a contentment, a peacefulness of experience in which the world is just coming and going, revealing and passing from one moment to the next, and one genuinely feels, I'm not making any effort, I'm not striving, I'm not trying to get to some uh, goal or destination, and I'm just seeing the way things are. I'm just observing the way things are. And that sense of that, that uh, awareness with the equanimity, the calmness that goes with it, is such that when we sense I'm observing the way things are, there is a peacefulness there. And we know in that time we're not fighting with things, with others, with the world around us, we're also not withdrawing from it, and the, the qualities of the mind, including feelings of course, are such that there's awareness there, there's choiceless witnessing, uh, equanimity there to what is occurring. We don't feel to be trapped to praise and blame, and we're not hunger, hungry for anything material or, or spiritual. So sometimes it is, I would not agree, but sometimes it is said, this is what the meditation is about. This is what seeing things as they are really means. To really see things as they are in their pristineness, shall we say, without all the filter of the projections and interpretations and positive and negative judgments and all of that, just to see things as they are. And there has been 
of course, in situations like this and in the monasteries as well, of course, many, many reminders that that is what it is to see things as they are. If we were to adopt that and say, yes, that's what it means, that's what, that's when one feels undisturbed without alienation or detachment, if one was to adopt that view as being the seeing of things as they are, the suchness of things, whatever, to take that view, I suspect what can happen, and there is some historical evidence, it leaves a passivity. It leaves a kind of, kind of quietitude of being, and that quietitude of being has an interest in sustaining and keeping that equanimity, that balance, mind, that evenness of perception, and preserving it. And one says to oneself, this is what I want in my daily life. I see that there are some uh, teachers who are uh, 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 like, like this, not me hopefully, but some other teachers who are like this, and they seem to embody a kind of calmness about their being which can seem and appear very, very, very attractive. And one and sees that as a kind of embodiment of how I would like to be because obviously that teacher or that person is seeing clearly, is seeing things as they are. And to some degree there's quite, quite a high value <coughs> here. All the value of that, not wishing to disregard or dismiss or that, that value of calmness and contentment and and uh, not being tied to praise and blame, but I don't think that's what the essence or the heart of the teachings uh, is about. And it leads, as it has done historically, it leads to a difficulty, and it leads to a significant difficulty, because the significance of the difficulty is it almost ends up almost with almost two ways of regarding the world. One is being clear and uh, calm, equanimous, peaceful in one's mind, uh, oneself, and the other which says, well, action and really doing something and getting out there in the world, that's what really matters. And to some degree there has been an ongoing dilemma historically between these two. And thus one has to remember that sometimes some people, in this case some uh, um, people, sometimes the ordained people, I, I would say, and I can speak with the authority of a person who did seven years, in the, um, several years, six years in the monkhood, that sometimes situations like the robes and the monkhood are such that there is a one is blinded by the robes. This, I can tell you, this is the view of an insider. One is blinded by the robes. And what I mean, mean by that, how very, very easily one may see the robes and see the calm demeanor of the monk, that calm demeanor of the monk 
may be there, it may be consistent, and it may be present from one day to the next, one year to the next. However, the monk lives in a very calm world. The monk is never moving out of a very calm world. He goes from one setting to another where the response of the people who are around him is this. Who would could get agitated with this? <laughs> For those who are listening on the tape recorder, it means my hands have just come together. <laughs> So sometimes the state of mind, the calmness of mind, is, is determined and is shaped by the social environment, genera generated by the social environment. Just recently, when Henrietta and I were in Budgaya, one of the monks, with an assistant, uh, a layperson, was walking through Bihar. Bihar in India is one of the most is the most violent and corrupt and poor state of India compared to anywhere else. And they were walking through some of what he called the holy sites, like Rajgir and um, Bodhgaya, Saranath, Banaras, and so forth. And while on this walk, six dacoits, as they're called, six bandits in the, ju in the jungle near uh, uh, Rajgir uh, grabbed, grabbed them, and they had very, very little, the begging bowl, the spare set of robes, of course, the passports, some uh, air tickets, uh, traveler's checks, diary, a small camera, uh, which the lay person was carrying, and the minimum basic number of articles for this long pilgr pilgrimage. The lay person fled. Again, the flight syndrome panicked, ran, and was pursued, jumped over a a ravine, the dacoits couldn't get him, the dacoits each had an axe, grabbed hold of uh, the monk there, the layperson came back to try uh, to see what he could do, he was grabbed, they were beating him with the back of the axe handle and the monk just sat down, sat cross-legged, sat, sat still and the dacoits grabbed hold, or held the axe and pricked up the axe like this at him and the monk sat there and just pointed to the spot on his head for the axe to hit. And to his credit, he didn't tell me this story. I had to squeeze it out of his uh, uh, assistant. And in some situations like that, the metal, <laughs> the metal of the person is tested. So again, with with monks, monks may be calm, may live in an atmosphere of calmness from day in and day out, but sometimes a situation like that uh, arises and then one sees the metal of the mind there and to stay steadfast in such circumstances. And they lost, they lost, they lost the outer robe, they lost just everything, all, all gone. So I say, what sometimes appears outwardly, one also has to give consideration for in the kind of total sense of, a, of, of the setting. But there's still this dilemma between the calmness and equanimity, called seeing things as they are, and 
the action and service and how easily the ego, the vice, can be in the service. So I don't think, in a way, that either one is the place, as it were, to hang our hat. I think in this, in this extraordinary world that we live in, at times, with the way we speak about the world, we speak about it and communicate about it and feel about it, because the language isn't distinguishable from the way we feel and about it. We can't say the world is like this. We can't say that life is for doing things for other people. And we can't say life is just um, getting absorbed, getting connected and linked up with the here and now. Once in the, in the movement towards the seeing things as they are in this kind of tr classical traditional sense of just seeing what's happening here, here and now, it seems a limited perception. It seems limited when there's a world in which we participate in, in which one says of this world, ah, engagement in action, doing, preferably of course, doing for others, doing for oneself and the necessities of doing for oneself, that all of that, that, that seems limited as well. So what would it be to take up neither position? What would it be that there's no place, psychologically, no place for our mind to hang its hat and say, this is what it's about. Acknowledging the way we talk emphasizes present, being, emphasizes doing, emphasizes moving back and forth between the two, but no place to hang. What would it be to have no posture, no ultimate reference point, no standpoint? If I was to speak to you consistently about effort, there would become the intimations of irritation with that, constantly having to make an effort. There's be some doubt would some would emerge out of out of that. If I have to speak to you consistently about no effort, having no effort, making no effort, and putting all that, there would be some doubt about that. So no place to hang one's hat at all. And that no place to hang the hat. Then it's not not only not hanging the hat in the past, nor in the future but equally not hanging it in the present either. And so when the teachings occasionally and, and dangerously begin to use the word emptiness, begin to use the word suchness, if in any, any, any way there's the slightest whisper of passivity in this, it's misunderstood. If in any way seeing things as they are gives the whisper of just being here and just being, and that's it, gives any whisper of that, seeing things as they are is misunderstood. 
if there's any whisper, you know, of seeing things as they are, is to do something and get involved in doing and doing. Then it's not being understood. So I say, neither being stuck with doing, neither with being, neither with action, nor with non-action. No place to hang the, the mind. Then we can't say anything. And perhaps of that silence of which doing and being are just ways of interpreting. Perhaps with that with that silence we are our mind rests. We see that it's not a fit instrument. It can't serve any purpose. It's rendered rather obsolete. And there's no thought to maximize what was just said as a position. There's no interest to do that. The wonderful thing is that being and doing doesn't make any difference to that which we call suchness, to that which we use the word emptiness. And not making any difference ends any dilemma. Sometimes the feeling response is a rather delightful sense of wonder. And then anything we say is applicable. It's all a bit much, or it's all nothing whatsoever. beings explore the nature of things may all beings be free from being stuck in the active and in the passive may all beings be touched with wonder so let's have a couple of quiet minutes shall we
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.